I do believe that Palestine, just like Kashmir, is a, a Muslim question or a Muslim issue, if you will. And I, I really am baffled why that's such a controversial thing to say. A national question is like a million questions all rolled up in one. So where I, I can say without hesitation that Palestine absolutely is a Muslim issue or a Muslim question. And also they say that, that Palestine is a, is a black question, right? As, as long as there has been black resistance in the United States, there's been support for Palestine, or at least since the onset of Zionism, right? That, that I would say the question of Palestine has been hugely important to the black radical consciousness or the black political consciousness. So I would say that Palestine is a black issue also, not to mention the fact that, that, that a lot of Palestinians identify along that color line. I would say that Palestine is also a Christian question, right? I would say that Palestine is a socialist and a communist question also. It can be all of those things at once. The nation contains multitudes and we have to find a way to let everybody who feels invested in that nation have their say. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics, and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research, and struggle. Hello and salam. I'm Shivangi Maryam Raj for this episode of the Phenambulist Podcast. I'm honoured and delighted to have with me a special guest whose writings many of us are familiar with and seek inspiration from. I'm joined by Stephen Salaita, who is a Palestinian scholar and public speaker based in the US. He has previously taught at University of Wisconsin-Whitewater and Virginia Tech. Stephen is the author of several books, including Anti-Arab Racism in the USA, Um, The Holy Land in Transit, The Uncultured Wars, Israel's Death Soul, and others. Our conversation today will attempt to reflect over the Palestinian struggle for liberation by analyzing how language is used as a weapon for colonization. We will talk about the limits of human rights framework, conditional solidarities, sanitized victimhood, and more. Hello, Stephen. Thank you so much for being here today. Hello, thank you for having me. I will dive right into visual language first. Um, With the Israeli attacks against Palestinians in May last year, all our social media streams were saturated with photographs that pulled us in with their disturbing degrees of intensity. And, um, And these photographs were either a portrait of a gutted Palestinian house 
wailing wives or terrified mothers, or they signaled hope, um, as was the case with the photograph of two children in Gaza, if you remember, who had rescued a fish from the rubble. And what struck me the most um, was the absence of photographs of Palestinian resistance, of men who were fighting the occupational forces. What informs this absence? That's um, a really good question and a really sharp observation you've made about the the nature of the photographs and you know what what things get get circulated. And so with social media, there's you know there's there's an implicit politics behind the the kinds of choices that people make, especially the influencers who who put the photographs up and ensure that they receive a wide circulation. In general, the the absence of photographs of of Palestinian resistance is is pretty deeply informed by an absence of serious conversation around Palestinian resistance in general in Western spaces or spaces of the global North, whatever you want to call it. Um, And so the, the content of the photographs reflects, at least in this case, the strictures of the discourse and what even on the left will be considered an acceptable politics. And we don't discuss Palestinian resistance uh, very specifically in the West, even in, in the Western left. It's, it's a taboo topic in part because I think that, that people are scared for their careers, they're scared of getting in trouble, but also they don't engage Palestinian resistance in a concrete way the way that we might see, certainly in Palestine, but in, in other areas of, of the Arab and the broader Islamic world. The Palestinian resistance is is something that, that kind of puts you in a space of disrepute in the West, particularly online. And so a, a lot of people tend to want to avoid it. I think also there's, uh, you know, an, an element of latent Islamophobia. Sometimes it's explicit that, that informs a reluctance to, to share images of the resistance. Sometimes you see, you know, the, the green headbands and armbands, right, with the, uh, the Quranic script on it. And, 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 and people don't want to think of Palestine as rooted in this kind of imagery, rooted in, in this set of hopes and in this kind of vision for the future. They kind of want to sanitize it according to what they want Palestinian resistance to look like a, a, a kind of liberal democracy framework or a rights framework. I think that, that accounts for a lot of it. And also, I think there's the simple matter of algorithm on social media that these images of, of the resistance are much less likely to circulate and have a higher likelihood of being censored. And it makes me wonder if these photographs also direct the viewer to accept some Palestinians as being human. Um, being innocent, unsuspecting victims, while relegating others to the category of a stubborn savage, a dangerous jihadi who who must be eliminated, who can never be mourned. Probably. 
and I don't know to what degree it happens unconsciously or versus whether it happens explicitly, but in terms of outcome, I think it's exactly as you described that they want to create a context and a narrative of Palestine that is suitable to the Western eye and for for the Palestinian to become human, that, that's always been a struggle. I'm, I'm going to speak specifically of, of the United States, where, where I was born and raised. So the, the effort to force Palestinians into the category of human has always required a certain amount of whitewashing. And even then, it, it's been a, a tremendously difficult struggle. And it continues to be a struggle. Uh, so once you know, you have spaces on, on, in the American left where it's assumed, let's say, that Palestinians are in fact human. Well, then we have to question, we have to grapple with the question of, well, in your mind, what kind of human are they? And what kind of human do you want them to be? And it's that latter question, I think, that that gets us into some of the troubles that 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 you point to, you know, the that binary between, you know, the innocent, unsuspecting victim and the stubborn sa savage or the dangerous jihadi that there's 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 I, I think a moral component to the American gaze that wants the Palestinian to exist in a kind of a primeval state in a in a state of perpetual innocence and this takes away of course from the agency of Palestinian resistance and it again puts us into this framework where the American audience is sort of inventing the identity or even the category of the Palestinian according to the needs and, and desires of the American audience rather than trying to grapple with or, you know, certainly not to comprehend what it is, how it is that the Palestinian might exist in his or her own context. And that context, the Palestinian context, is a lot more complicated and sometimes a lot sloppier and sometimes a, 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 a lot less um, friendly to, um, you know, to the American audience that I think a lot of people want are willing to recognize. This reminds me of the statement released by Amnesty International which not only soft soaps the liberal sentiment by referring to Israeli war crimes and a mammoth structure of settler colonialism with the term apartheid, but also defines the entire Palestinian resistance using the rhetoric of human rights and international law. What are the implications of such a coding, um, particularly from the perspective of global solidarity for Palestine? That's a, a really fantastic and interesting question. And uh, I'm, I'm chuckling because uh, as soon as I heard the term Amnesty International, a bunch of alarm bells went off in my head and I'm starting to worry that, that I'm going to start ranting and raving for, you know, for the, for the next little while. Because I have a lot of very strong feelings about the Amnesty International report and you know, for the, the benefit of, of our listeners, um, you know, for, for if for some reason they didn't hear about it, uh, Amnesty put out a report, what was it, about two weeks ago, I think, um, somewhere around there recently, within the past month, uh, 
you know, accusing um, Israel of, of practicing apartheid. And of course, this, um, you know, this, this brought tons of, of remonstration from Israel's supporters, from liberal Zionists, and a huge debate ensued, as it always does. Uh, let me start by saying, and this happened before my time, but you know, back about uh, you know, 50 years ago, when there was an effort in the UN to designate Zionism as a form of racism. And this is something that, that happened again about 20 years ago at the Durban conference in, in South Africa. I, I can't remember the year exactly. Well, that was a, a debate that led to a, a similar sort of outcry from Israel's supporters on both the left and the right. But I would argue that the is Zionism racism debate is more meaningful than the, the question of whether Israel is an apartheid or not. Is I think the, the question of Israel's racial composition and the racialization inherent to Zionist ideology and, and, and practice really get at some of the fundamental problems of Israeli colonization in, in, in a sharper way than discussion of, of apartheid does. And apartheid also harkens us to, um, you know, to the South African context as well. Anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is that whereas the, the debates at an international level over whether Zionism constitutes racism, I think we were dealing at the very least with a serious question. And I don't feel that way with the Amnesty International report. I, I was, I, I didn't complain about it online. I, I didn't think that it was necessarily a useful thing to do, or maybe even the time to do it, because you know the report. I guess you could say hypothetically is is pushing opinion away from Israel and in favor of the Palestinians. I don't know if you can empirically measure that or not, but that was my rationale. It might have been a, a poor rationale, but it was just a discourse I didn't feel like jumping into. And one of the reasons I didn't want to jump into is because I didn't think that there was a, a too much at stake. That you know, hey, what okay, we're gonna call Israel an apartheid state or not? And and what changes with that acknowledgement in our fundamental understanding of the situation of Palestinians? What does that tell us about Palestinian culture and society and resistance? What does that tell us about the Palestinian future? It really doesn't tell us much. At all, so we end up with a, a, a lot of semantic squabbles that exist, as you say, in a framework of human rights and international law. And I, I want to talk just for a second, as, as you've asked me to, about maybe some of the problems or, or limitations with, with, with that uh, framework or with that approach or point of view, whatever you want to call it. The human rights framework, which Amnesty International embodies, is limited in lots of ways. It does not really cohere to the nature and to the, the, the qualities of Palestinian resistance as it exists in Palestine and in surrounding countries. But let's look at it solely in, in a Western framework. Human rights does not, especially as the Amnesty report made clear, doesn't address questions of class, right? And class is a, a cardinal aspect of settler colonization, which of course Zionism is a form of. It doesn't address, most importantly, the national question. And for Palestine and Palestinians, the, the national question is at the very center of 
our political identity. And when I say national question, again, for, you know, for the benefit of, of our listeners, mo- mo- many of whom probably know about the national question much better than I do, it, it's, it's, you know, kind of a, a concept that comes out of, uh, it starts with Marx, but it, it really gains steam in decolonial literature and theory with, with Franz Fanon. And he was discussing the, the national question largely in the context of Algeria, but the national question for Palestinians are a question of, it's, it's a question of the, the future. Uh, it's a question of decolonization. It's a question of restoring what has been taken from us and thinking through the possibilities of having not only political rights restored, but having an economic destiny, destiny restored in the context of the restoration of an actual nation, right? The Palestinian nation. The nation was colonized, its population was dispersed. And so the national question becomes sort of the central issue in terms of how Palestinian society can survive. And it can survive by creating its own economy, by creating its own foreign policy, by first and foremost, expunging the colonizer and creating a political context in which Palestinians are, are free to make their own decisions and control their own destiny. So that's the, that's the national question, you know, in part for Palestine. And so human rights will not address class and it will not address the national question. It also doesn't address questions of, of religion and it doesn't really address questions of, of civic society. What the human rights question framework does do is it it sort of slaps the wrist of the colonizer in ways that the colonizer is well structured to withstand all right so the amnesty report comes out people hem and haw for a few days then they forget about it and the news cycle moves on to the next issue and what has happened to israel nothing it continues doing what it's always done which is to steal from Palestinians, which is to kill Palestinians, which is to uh, appropriate land from Palestinians, so forth and so on. It's building settlements. It's, it's settling people from the Ukraine right now as we speak. So nothing changed. And I'm not putting it on amnesty or, or any other human rights organization to, to liberate Palestine. But for the people who are interested or are serious about liberating Palestine, then we have to think beyond these frameworks that might satisfy your middle of the road western progressive and i would also point out that that amnesty international made it very clear that it it was not making a judgment a moral judgment or a moral evaluation about uh, the, the composition of of israel's occupation it was just stating a fact it had no policy advice nothing and so we'll that's what a human rights framework is is going to get you. You know, the idea that that you know you should take your boot off the Palestinian's neck, maybe, right? And and maybe uh, you know re- restore some rights to this population that has long been oppressed. Well, okay. Well, we have to do a lot more. We have to think a lot harder, and we have to think a lot more intensely about what the what the possibilities of liberation are in context of the national question, in the context of class, in context of the racial paradigms that 
Zionism has imposed on Jews and Palestinians in, in that strip of land between the river and the sea. We also have to recognize that so-called 48 Palestinians, the Palestinian citizens of, of Israel, the ones inside the Green Line, are also subject to you know, what Amnesty deemed apartheid. But the, the report was focused on the so-called occupied territories of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. All of these, I, I'm, I'm rambling, and I apologize, and and I, uh, you know, I thank your readers, uh, your listeners, for for their patience in listening to me. I guess if, if I could sum it up as as um, as quickly as possible, I would say that human rights are important. Human rights, maybe with an enforcement mechanism have the ability to make people's lives a little bit easier, but human rights don't really lead us to the question of liberation and maybe some of the more difficult questions that an emphasis on liberation would raise and that an emphasis on liberation would require. And what about the traditional leftist ecosystem, uh, which is often seen hailing these kinds of tokens from NGOs, social media influencers, or their favorite electoral candidates. Um, does such a narrative allow them to dictate to Palestinians, to indigenous peoples, and to black people what resistance should um, sound and behave like? They do. It's a serious problem. And I'm trying to think of it outside of the context of, of social media. But when you talk about a traditional leftist ecosystem, I would kind of define it now, not, not only as, as sort of the, the formations that exist on, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and whatever, but also the, the, the kind of media that we have available to us among the, you know, the self-identified left, um, you know, in, in, in North America, in Western Europe, and in North America, the leftism is, is really dominated by, uh, you know, democratic socialist media or, or social democratic media, as, as I call it, sock dem media. And in those contexts, electoralism holds a ton of sway. I've, I've been a detractor of, of electoralism for a long time, and it never <laughs> fails to get me in a lot of trouble with people. You know, you if you sort of reject both the logic and the practice of electoralism, you are really in for, you know, a lot of browbeating from um, so-called Marxists or, you know, socialists or whatever in, in, in the United States. It's, it's, it's sacrosanct to the American imagination and in part because it's, it's tied into the, the very philosophical foundation of U.S. exceptionalism which of course is, is, is tied into the tradition of US settler colonization, which is ongoing today. Though I don't think that, and here I, I'm, I'm not trying to sound as flippant as I'm going to sound, but I don't think that a lot of people in the North American left are really equipped with the language and the theory and the framework to understand a lot of the demands that Palestinians and indigenous peoples and black people are making it sounds very foreign to them. When, for example, and he, here I'm, I'm getting into the territory that, that's gotten me into so much trouble before um, with the, 
the social democratic cadre that, that, that dominates online media. You have somebody like uh, Jamal Bowman, okay? The, the, there was a huge debate recently about Jamal. He's a, a congressman in, um, in Southern New York and his district includes um, you know, parts of Northern Manhattan and, and the Bronx and Westchester County. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's an urban and uh, suburban district, a diverse district. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a DSA guy. He, he, he's a member of, of that organization, the biggest uh, so-called leftist organization in the United States. It's, it really, really sort of exploded with uh, Bernie Sanders' candidacy in 2015. Well, Bowman, you know, he, he broke the BDS, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions picket line. He visited Israel. He did a bunch of J Street. He did all kinds of stuff that any serious anti-Zionist would find unacceptable. And there was this huge debate about uh, whether to expel him from the DSA or not. And he, he ended up not getting expelled. But I, I didn't have any real opinion, opinion on whether he should get expelled from the DSA or not, because that's not of interest to me. I'm not a member of the organization. And frankly, I don't really care who they expel or who they don't expel. That's really none of my business. And, and I don't think that, although there are a lot of people doing really fantastic work, uh, struggling really hard, uh, people who I admire and, and I'm deeply proud to consider friends and comrades. I, I, I don't know that it's not a waste of time trying to get organizations you know, essentially liberal organizations like the DSA to, to, to rid itself of, of it, it, the Zionism that has been there from the beginning. Right, so having said all of that, what I kept seeing in, in the debates is this idea that the Palestinians who refuse to accommodate the logic of electoralism right, were barbaric, savage, immature wreckers. And this is common stuff. Anytime a Palestinian or an anti-Zionist in general says, no, we cannot accommodate Zionism for the logic of somebody's political career in the United States or for the logic of tenure or for the logic of, of anything that benefits somebody other than Palestinians. Okay? And then you immediately get sort of cast out into this, this role of, you know, this screaming barbarian crawling around on, on your belly, uh, full up of your own uh, purity. And it's extraordinarily frustrating because if you go to, certainly if you go to Palestine, but if you go to the various places of the global South, you don't have this problem. Because a lot of the people there, especially the people you know who are educated politically, I don't mean educated formally, or just educated politically, who have spent time on the street and know how shit works, they understand that your opposition to the oppressor, to the colonizer, has to be absolute. You don't go around making accommodations to it because they're going to take that accommodation and they're going to flay you with it. <laughs> they're going to take that accommodation, they're going to use it as a stick, and, and they're going to continue to beat you over the head with it, that your opposition to oppression has to be firm. You don't go around making compromises with your own life, with your own ability to live, with your own future. You don't do those sorts of things. And so the, 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 the logic among so much of the, the NGO 
social media influencer leftist ecosystem is that we need to seat people who will then grant power to us. And it's never worked that way. And it's always bothered me that, that they call you know, people of my ilk, uh, uh, people who refuse to sort of play that game, unrealistic. Because thinking that you can seat people in the US Congress right, and then get something out of them, what you need is the most unrealistic position of all. There's not an iota of evidence that that position has ever helped a single Palestinian anywhere in the world. That you cannot point to anything in U.S. electoralism that has provided the Palestinian people with a, a, a single bit of, of material profit, nothing. And so what I would encourage people, and the same thing is true, by the way, sorry, uh, with, with uh, Black liberation, the same thing is true with, with uh, Indigenous liberation in the Western Hemisphere and globally, too, that... that people are stuck on the idea of America redeeming itself and, and becoming what it has actually promised to be without a recognition that, that the, the, the polity itself came into existence based on the dispossession and based on the enslavement of these populations. People need to switch around the, the, you know, the, their, you know, the, the foundation, I guess, of, of their logic and start thinking about issues in terms of what it means for the people that we're purporting to represent. So sticking with Palestinians, when the NGO tells us, you know, go vote for Bernie Sanders, you know, he's going to take care of it for you, or, you know, or the leftist influencers. The only thing I'm going to repeat, the only people that this approach has ever benefited are the social media influencers and the NGOs and the weak-ass political parties themselves, it has never done anything for Palestinians, for Black people, for Native Americans, or any other community that lives under the oppressor's boot. In the end, we need to look at an issue from the point of view of the oppressed and then work our logic outward from that. And what I see too often in these media environments you bring up is uh, a desire to force the colonized or to force the oppressed into a paradigm, into a politic that accounts for their sorry condition to begin with. Stephen, your response takes me to your essay, Architectures of Delusion, um, where you talk about the courageous defiance of Mahmoud Abdullah Arda, Mohammed Qasim Arda, Zakaria Zubaydi, Yaqub Mahmoud Qadri, Ayham Naif Kamamji, and uh, Monadel Yaqub Nafid in reclaiming their freedom from the Gilboa prison. Um, I was specifically drawn towards your articulation of law and lawlessness in the context of Zionism's fragile psyche, uh, parts of which you hinted at just now. Um, would you like to elaborate on that? I, I would be happy to, and you know, may you know, blessings be upon the the prisoners you mentioned. They they suffered tremendously uh, for the greater part of of their lives, and they they've given 
so many people around the world inspiration and it was just just heartbreaking to you know to to see them end up um, back in prison just a, a horrible horrible thing well they I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to to you know to do honor to with my words to the the courageous people who have um you know who have resisted and have been put into prison or, or otherwise punished because of, of their resistance, because of their bravery, because of their unwillingness to, to lie down and, and, you know, let the occupier do what the occupier wants. I think that with the Palestinian, there's almost a sense that suffering is is their lot in life and that a lot of the audience in 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 the west is content for the the palestinian to kind of exist in this this symbology of 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 suffering you know the the sad palestinian on hunger strike or the sad palestinian being arrested or the sad palestinian sitting in prison and and I would really like to see more effort made to show the Palestinian in conditions of joy and in conditions of freedom it's not uh that that the boundaries of 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 life aren't dictated by the occupier when the men escaped from uh, the, you know, the brutal Gilboa prison. They sort of showed us a kind of, it was the, the, the perfect, I, I think it was the, the perfect symbolization of what the national struggle looks like for Palestinians, that the occupier cannot build a structure that will forever enclose the native, that you're never gonna build a prison, right? That that I'm gonna sit in in quietly and and accept as as natural or as eternal. And so a lot of it, when you see the you saw the hole in the ground, right? The the famous tiny hole that that the prisoners climbed out of. And there were a lot of pictures of befuddled um, you know, Israeli policemen and soldiers sort of staring at the hole thinking what the hell like what just happened and it was a remarkable moment because it that whole was was something of a uh, you know a, an intervention into uh into a landscape into an ecosystem and it wasn't supposed to be there and that's how i've always thought of that 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 prison break as something that disrupts the colonizer's sense of time and place that that interrupts the colonizer's sense of order and i and i love the way that the prisoners ended up sort of turning the landscape onto its its head that they they were literally underground and they crawled out of the ground like like plants like living beings and and they they managed to you know sort of uh, uh, escape disappear into the night almost as if they were never there to begin with. 
And it, it, it really produces so many wonderful opportunities, not only for us to, to admire their, their courage and their ingenuity and their defiance, but also to try to apply that courage and ingenuity and defiance onto our political analysis and try to think about what Palestine means in, 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 in these conditions of resistance, to think about what, what Palestine means in light of what these prisoners accomplished, rather than thinking about it in, in terms of, of you know, what, what it means for the logic of the, you know, the, the Western left ecosystem or, or the, you know, the NGO environment that they, in a sense, they gave us a gift and gave us an opportunity also to change the landscape, to make interventions, to, uh, to, to dig holes in, 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 um, in the normal barriers and also in a way to, uh, you know, to, abscond into the night <laughs> and, uh, and and try to put ourselves together in, in a different world, in a different environment. I'm trying to think how this is contrasted with the dominant grammar of photographs of uh, Palestinian prisoners. And I'm thinking specifically about Khadanfar Abu Atwan and Hisham Abu Hawash, among hundreds of others. Um, whose emaciated bodies, distressed loved ones, and um, faint placards demanding their release, um, they keep on floating our, our social media streams. Um, what do these photographs do to the agency of these men? Do they erase their contribution to the vocabulary of resistance? Um, because being a prisoner is is clearly not their primary identity. It's it's a complicated question because at at uh, the most practical level, the the hunger strikers, I guess, need the view of the camera to connect with an audience and to get a message across. At the same time, the the hunger striker is not only giving up sustenance, but the hunger striker is, is giving up a deeply held privacy. And so it's a doubly horrible situation for him. I, I'm pretty uncomfortable looking at the images of, of emaciated hunger strikers. I, I, you know, I guess some people might call it sharing those, those pictures and videos a necessary evil, but it's not a process that I prefer to partake in. So I, I, I don't share those images. Um, I, I don't like looking at those images either. Uh, they, 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 they bother me on a profound level because there, there's something, there's just something deeply intimate and private about hunger, right? about a lack of nourishment. And that's something that touches us on on a level that that's really hard to describe almost on a, a primal parental level that you, you want people to be fed but you also have to understand why why they're not eating i don't think that to the degree that people are going to share those images they should share them passively in other words the images don't stand on their own and 
if you've ever listened to an interview with any of those um, hunger strikers, they don't want them to be shared on their own. They, they want their act to be understood in context of the national question. They're doing it for national liberation, not for personal gratification. Obviously they're not doing it for personal gratification. And so we, we shouldn't treat them as, as, as subjected individuals. We should treat them as people who are sacrificing, sacrificing in extremely difficult ways for the good of the nation itself or, or for the good of the national struggle, you know, for their fellow prisoners, uh, for their, their, their you know, uh, fellow Palestinians or, or oppressed people all over the world who, who are willing to emaciate themselves for something so simple but deeply important as freedom. What also strikes me about those, those images is that it, it feels to me almost, I, I wanna think of the right word. It feels to me almost unethical to consume those photos and videos. It just does because their subjects are, are being consumed already. They're being consumed from the inside, right? Their, their organs are, are being eaten by their own bodies. They're being reduced to the, the, the flesh in a, a very explicit way. And so I, 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 they've already given up too much of themselves to be made available for the consumption of outsiders. And I, I really think that that's, that's something that uh, audiences ought to think about when, when, when those pictures get passed around. Invoke their names, invoke their names with honor and invoke their names with gratitude and tell their stories, tell their stories loudly, but also tell their stories in context of why they're willing to do such a difficult thing to themselves, why they're, they're willing to be consumed for a, a better future, for a better outcome, why they're willing to, I guess, go into the void for the sake of the nation. Again, this is, this is part of the, the national question. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with, uh, with, with praising their, their courage and praising their fortitude. Those are absolutely remarkable things, but we, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that these are not images for, for our detached consumption, that in undertaking a hunger strike, the strikers are asking us to do something right to produce something sustainable precisely from what they're depriving their own bodies of and 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 i think that 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 that's what the the, the focus needs to be that we we need to um that we need to act on our own energy in ways that they've made themselves unavailable to do because otherwise they're 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 doing it for nothing right they're doing it for nothing and so i, I don't want us to look at them as 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 you know sort of uh, detached 
floating signifiers of suffering. I want us to look at them as, as warriors who are inspiring us to do what we are capable of, of doing. And from the, 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 the prison, they feel like that that's what they're most capable of doing. For those of us on the other side of the prison wall, particularly for those of us in the West, um, there are all kinds of, of different options available to us. And it seems like an insult you know, to to the the, the subjects of of the circulating images, if 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 we don't do as much as we can to make sure that this sort of thing becomes unnecessary. Hmm. Um, I have also come across conversations which refuse to extend solidarity to Palestine um, because they call it a Muslim question, and in a similar vein, um, Kashmir's fight for self determination has also mostly been ignored by the world and, and dismissed and mocked by Indian leftists because it too, you know, bears the weight of, of the Muslim question. So, so referring to another essay of yours, um, is Palestine a Muslim question? And what are the consequences of discourses which unequivocally answer no to this question. Yeah, this I I I, I could go on for I could go on for hours. Um, you know, on, on on the question of whether Palestine is a Muslim question. I so I wrote about it. I don't know a few months ago, six months ago, maybe a year ago, and I really made a lot of people mad. And it's, I'm not saying that with pride. I'm I'm saying that with the recognition that I don't want to make them mad all all over again because you know we within our our own communities, you know, we we have a lot of of heavy disagreement around certain things and just. Uh, to provide some context, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm not practicing, but I'm of, of Christian background, so I'm not Muslim. I, I wasn't raised Muslim. I, I, I don't practice Islam, but I do believe that Palestine, just like Kashmir, is a, a Muslim question or a Muslim issue, if you will. And I, I really am baffled why that's such a controversial thing to say. You, you kind of touch on it, you know, in your, um, you know, in, in, in your question and, and your framing remarks that it, it certainly has to do with, with what's normally called, I guess, uh, Islamophobia. That, that's a word kind of with its own problems, but, you know, it's, it, there's definitely a, a, a reticence to engage with, with, uh, with Islam, with people who, who practice the religion or, or even with people who simply identify with the religion. But let's think of it this way. Um, the, the, the demographic questions, you know, the, 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 the demographic studies aren't, aren't foolproof, you know, so there, there's a lot of variation, but more or less Palestine was historically, you know, about 75 to 78% Muslim. Um, you know, on the eve of Zionism, it was probably about 20% Christian. Then you had a Druze population. You know, you had a small population of Jewish Palestinians, um, Samaritans. Uh, there, there's a Baha'i community in Palestine. So it was, it was largely Muslim with a lot of uh, religious minorities, with the, the biggest of those religious minorities being Christians, who, of course, have, have had a long presence in Palestine since the time of Christ. Well, 
<laughs> when you're dealing with a, a nation or a national community that is at the very least 75% of one religion, then their religion is always central to the national question, whether you want it to be or not. And and a lot of a lot of Palestinian leftists will will make a declaration: Palestine is not a Muslim issue. Palestine is an issue of colonization and freedom. And I, and I agree with that. Well, the second part of it, anyway. But what the, these kinds of declarations, in my opinion, foreclose on the possibility, maybe, of of of. More broader and more inclusive analysis. It, it shuts down our ideas. What they should say is, I want Palestine to be a, a secular question of national liberation. But for the great majority of Palestinians themselves, it's not. It's a religious question in addition to a political question. And so this, this sometimes has the element, and, and sometimes it happens tacitly, or sometimes it, it happens without the speaker's desire at all. You get the sense that it, it, it's people either wanting to appease a Western audience with sort of a what they would consider a sanitized version of Palestinian society or, or Palestinian public opinion, or it's it's a matter of imposing an idea onto Palestine of what you want Palestinians to be rather than what they actually are. Now in Palestine itself, I, I don't know what all of the surveys say. The surveys are unreliable, but of course there are secularists. There, you know, there's the PFLP, which is a secular Marxist-Leninist group. Um, you know, the the Palestinian Authority has has plenty of Christian influence in it. Then you also have Hamas and uh, Islamic Jihad and, and other outfits. And the, you know, you can't go around saying that Hamas is, is really doesn't represent Palestinians. Well, maybe not all of them, but it represents a significant portion of Palestinians. And, and so to me, uh, uh, you know, what, what people are doing and making these pronouncements about what Palestine is and Palestine isn't is, is really deferring very serious questions about national liberation that Palestinians are gonna to have to confront and answer. They're gonna to have to answer questions about the, 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 the condition of, of civil society in a liberated Palestine. What is the state gonna look like, right? What is it gonna look like for its religious minorities? What, what is it gonna look like for its atheists? What is it gonna look like for its Muslim majority population? And that, that population is overwhelmingly Muslim at this point. What is it gonna look like for the, the Jews who become part of a presumable one state solution? And, and we can't, you know, I guess we can keep deferring those questions while, while Palestine Palestine is in a state of, of occupation and oppression, but sooner or later we have to confront those questions and you can't just wave off, you know, the question of religion, the question of Islam. And, and I think you're doing a disservice to Palestinians and to the national struggle by trying to pretend that Islam is not a serious motivating force for the Palestinian desire to be free and liberated. Access to Al-Aqsa is an enormous issue in Palestinian society and among Muslims across the entire world. That's an enormous issue. And that's the other thing. I think a lot of people want to remove the question of Islam from the question of Palestine because they are 
trying to keep out non-Palestinian or maybe even non-Arab Muslims from, from the discussion. But I think that they belong in the discussion. I do. We've been burned, you know, Palestinians have been burned by a clack of, of collaborationist, you know, uh, you know, MLI people, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the kind, uh, you know, Iranians and Turks and, and South Asians and a few Arabs as well, you know, who, who are going around normalizing with Israel and building nice little uh, careers in the West. So I understand that, but you, I, I don't think it's fair to say to, you know, to a Senegalese Muslim, well, you know, you're not Palestinian, Palestine means nothing to you. Well, clearly Palestine does mean something to him or to her. Right? You know, I, I think you cannot say to a Kashmiri, Palestine means nothing to you. And not only are they identifying with Palestine from a, a religious context, but from a political one as, as well. It is important to people in Kashmir. It is important to people in Indonesia and in, in Palestine or, or wherever, in Somalia, wherever it is that, that uh, has a Muslim majority population. And so certainly we can and we should welcome people into these national spaces because these national spaces are not hermetic. These national spaces e exist in the framework of interaction with other national spaces and other national questions. You know, and Palestine is always going to be international in that way. I don't know if I'm making any sense. I'm kind of ranting and, and, and rambling, but I, I guess I've always been, even as somebody who is not Muslim or somebody who doesn't really practice religion, I've always been deeply uncomfortable with the idea that, that we need to withhold the idea of the nation from religious practitioners when for religious practitioners, that nation, both as a body and an idea is, is deeply, hugely important as well it should be. As I said in my essay, I, I, I wish more non-Palestinian Muslims would get involved with the Palestinian cause, right? I, I think that a lot of them are too quiet about it, right? Uh, that, that, you know, how can you say it wasn't a beautiful, amazing thing when in the, the late 1970s, when Muhammad Ali, a black American, right? Uh, uh, marched in, in support of Palestinian freedom. That's a beautiful, you know, so what, what are you saying? That Muhammad Ali shouldn't have been saying anything because he's not Palestinian, that's absurd. Right. And so, but, but let me also say that a national question is uh, like a million questions all rolled up in one. So where I, I can say without hesitation that Palestine absolutely is a Muslim issue or a Muslim question. And also they say that, that Palestine is a, is a black question, right? As, as long as there has been black resistance in the United States, there's been support for Palestine, or at least since the onset of Zionism, right? That that I would say the question of Palestine has been hugely important to the black radical consciousness or the black political consciousness. So I would say that Palestine is a black issue also, not to mention the fact that, that, that a lot of Palestinians identify along that color line. I would say that Palestine is also a Christian question, right? I would say that Palestine is a socialist and a communist question also. It can be all of those things at once. The nation contains multitudes and we have to find a way to let everybody who feels invested in that nation have their say. That, that you, you, you can't make the nation or the national question something hermetic and exclusive because that's never going to work. It, 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 Palestine has never been hermetic or exclusive. And, and this, I know this is probably going to follow up on this. So let me just say, uh, sort of in anticipation, um, 
the question of of Kashmir, you know, and and I, I feel like I've been delinquent, you know, way more than I should in 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 thinking about and discussing that question. It, it, it's something that I identify with profoundly. Um, I, I've been blessed and and honored to know a lot of of wonderful Kashmiri colleagues and 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 friends, and and they've enriched my life in unspeakable ways. I, I hope that that you know, that, that I've managed to, to enrich their lives as well. But we, you know, to foreclose support for Kashmir or Palestine or, or, or you know, any other colonized nation because you're displeased with what you imagine to be the ethnic or religious characteristics of, of, of that nation, I, I, I think is, is verges on unethical or at the very least I, I, I find it uh, severely distasteful that in the end under communism, socialism, any other ism you want, we have to accept people as they are. We, we, we can't as advocates of solidarity demand that everybody conform to our sensibilities before we extend a hand of friendship. That, that 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 strikes me as a very poor way of of doing activism and organizing. Since we are on the topic of language, um, what about academic censorship and charges of anti-Semitism, which are heaped upon Palestinian scholars and professors for transgressing a certain rule of expression, and you too have been targeted by the Zionists. So, so how do you fight with or within language? I'm, I'm, you know, with your, with your permission, I'm going to keep it brief and to the point. How do I and other Palestinian academics continue to fight with our entire chest, without compromise, without apology? You will be called a purist, you'll be called an anti-Semite, you'll be called, uh, you know, crude, you'll be called un uncivil, but I, I cannot emphasize this enough. I, I have so many defi deficits of knowledge, but the one thing that I do know <laughs> and that I'm confident to speak about is that you never make concessions to the oppressor. If you're going to get punished, and you might, if you piss off Zionists, it's always a possibility, right? Then stare the oppressor in the face and take whatever punishment is coming. Don't concede. Don't start apologizing. If you're going to do it, do it right. Do not take up the cause of an oppressed people and then back away from it. It's much better never to take up the cause at all. It's deeply important to stay in principled solidarity with the people on whose behalf you purport to speak. The Palestinians aren't backing down, nor should we. And I know that that sounds um, mechanical and 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 all of that, you know, unnuanced, whatever. But 
that that would be the the whatever wisdom I have that would be the wisdom that 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 I impart do not make concessions to the oppressor because it's never going to be enough and they will never stop until you are in a state of destitution and 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 that's me speaking from experience both as somebody who has suffered the wrath of 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 you know angry uh you know zionists and as somebody who has observed it happen over and over again it is difficult to pause this conversation right now but thank you so much stephen for being here with me today i'm touched i am as well thank you so much for having me